You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. Merry Christmas, friends. It's great to be here today, and we are looking at this series, When the World Seems off course. Uh, I was thinking about the fall and just everything that the falls contain this year, and it's been such a great fall. I mean, we had a, a great week this last week. I don't know how many of you are part of our, our Christmas celebration for our seniors. That was amazing. We had so much fun there. But I was thinking back to even the beginning, how we kicked off our fall with the likable series. How many remember that? Becoming the person you'd like to hang out with. And there were these characteristics we talked about that were characteristics that we find in God. This is what makes God so attractive. I mean, many things make God so attractive. But what's interesting is when we reflect God's character in a world that might be devoid of it, there is something compelling about God. There's something compelling about his character. Then we, a couple of weeks ago, we were in our Global Focus Weekend, and we heard from three communicators, Michelle Bizayon, Simon Peter Amau, and Sheila Visser. And they talked about what God is doing globally, locally, and nationally. And you know, I'm so proud of this church family. We put in front of you projects totaling $180,000 to affect change in this world, and we are almost there. Uh, some of you might want to help us get there before the end of the year, but we're doing a ton of good around this world. That's close to over uh, half a million dollars this church has given away this year to help support people around the world. Love being a part of a church like that. And then we've been in more recently in this series, uh, When the World Seems Off Course. Let me tell you how the series got started. It started with a conversation between Pastor Keith, our teaching pastor, and myself, and we were just talking about some of the things and changes in this world. I, I don't know how that can't help but affect you. I have moments, I've, I was telling Shelly yesterday, two days ago I was reading the news and something I read, it disturbed me. You know, it was about, uh, it was our federal government just changed a policy uh, that, that uh, summer grant jobs for students, you know what those are? We, we rely on them for our day camps. The federal government has determined that charities that aren't pro-abortion can no longer receive them. So, wow, okay, wow. You know what's interesting in our world right now? I feel like I've never been at a stage in my history. Now, my history is so short, though, I know. But in my history where I felt it's been so intolerant. We can't even have differing views now. Everybody has to have the same view or you're out. So it's just fascinating watching this world. And, the, you know, you feel the weight of all of these things that are coming at you. So in that conversation, Pastor Keith began to put together the series because we thought, how do we assure those who are in Christ that somehow God's not taken by surprise by all of this? Last week was a powerful message by Pastor Keith. And if you, didn't, uh, listen, if you weren't able to be here last week, go to agentcourt.church. You can review any of our messages there. But he talked about how as believers, we have the ability because of Christ's spirit inside of us to shake off things like confusion, fear, hate, selfishness, and even the blindfolds that keep us in the dark. And instead, we get to choose by God's Spirit to walk in clarity. Man, I need that right now. I don't know if you do. I need it. Confidence, clean-heartedness, clout, and completeness. See, I want to continue on and build off of that from last week to talk about how when your world seems off course, whether it's your personal world or whether as you look back at the global or the national world and you see what's going on and it's discombobulating, 
And when you feel that, you can call on Jesus. That he is an ever-present presence in your life that you can call on. Now, in preparation for this, and you know, just so you know, like calling on him, a lot of that depends on his place in our lives and our place in his life. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 1. We're going to spend all our time in the book of Luke today. Let me give you context while you're turning there. But Luke is one of the four Gospels. There's four Gospels that are mentioned, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three are called synoptic Gospels because they give a summary of Jesus' life, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. John's a very different type of Gospel. I often tell people who are trying to discover who Jesus is, John's a great one to go to because it over half of the book of John focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. And it's very significant. But in Luke, Luke is a fascinating book because Luke wrote this gospel using firsthand eyewitnesses' accounts. So he interviewed people who had known Jesus, who had been there in those ministry moments, those who saw him die, those who saw him and witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And he took all of these firsthand eyewitness accounts and he gave us the book that's in front of us. And he starts in chapter 1. He takes us right into Jerusalem in chapter 1. And Jerusalem's the holy city where the prophets said in days, ago, days long ago that the children of God would meet, uh, would meet God in Israel, in Jerusalem. And he starts there by taking us right into the temple to a priest who's working, and his name is Zechariah. Now, in the early part of chapter 1, Zechariah is just minding his own business, doing his priestly duties, and an angel appears. And the angel's name is, is Gabriel. And he appears to Zechariah and he says to him, you're going to have a son. To which Zechariah responds, impossible. Impossible. In fact, his words are far more nuanced than mine. He says this, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man now and my wife is also well along in years. And notice he doesn't call his wife old. I thought, Guys, note this. This is really good, good coaching right here. We're beyond childbirthing years. What do you mean we're going to have a child? That's impossible. Now, I mentioned uh, Lucas' very fascinating book. He's a, a, an ingenious writer. He takes throughout the whole gospel narrative and he weaves in Old Testament promises and he hearkens it back to the Old Testament because he's building this strong connection that Jesus is the Messiah that's been promised centuries before. Matthew's book is very obvious. Matthew builds a genealogy. He draws straight lines from the Old Testament to the New. Luke is more nuanced. Here, think about this. When the Jewish readers were listening or reading Luke's gospel, what other Old Testament couple would be old, well beyond birthing years, and some sort of angelic being would show up and promise them they would have a child? Anyone know who that is? Abraham and Sarah. The patriarchs of Israel, the one to whom God had promised, through you, Abraham, will come a mighty nation, as many stars as there is in the sky. And of course, they're well beyond their childbearing years and no children. And all of a sudden, it says in the text in Genesis that three type of angelic hosts came to him. And in the context of it, they say, listen, Abraham, you're going to have a son. To which Sarah responds with these words. She says, how can a worn out woman like me enjoy such pleasure? Especially when my master, my husband, is also so old. (laughs) Now she can call him old, apparently. 
But did you note this? What does she call her husband? I'm just saying. It's in the Bible. That's all I'm saying. And we, we need to get back to base. No, never mind. <laughs> See, but it even goes further to tell us that when Sarah overheard this promise that you're going to have a son, she laughs. She laughs. And, and you probably would too. I mean, her childbearing years are way beyond, before. Uh, she's beyond them. And in response to this, the angelic being asks a question that's very powerful and may be very significant in your life in 2017. The angelic being turns to Sarah and Abraham and says this, is anything too hard for the Lord? Let me ask you that, friends. What type of answers are you waiting for? You having trouble trusting God with your children or your grandchildren? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Are you getting anxious by the things that are going around in the culture and society or the, the things that you're struggling with? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Are, are you feeling, maybe you're a young adult here and you're having trouble trusting that God has a plan for your life. He has a future for your life. And maybe you're tempted to short circuit God's plan to take hold and make it happen for yourself, even if it means walking over some of his commands. Is anything too hard for the Lord? See, the question for us is powerful because for Sarah and Abraham, they did have a son. His name was Isaac, and from him came the nation of Israel. So Luke is always pulling in the Old Testament, weaving them together, and that angel that comes to Zechariah says this, you're going to have a son, his name is going to be John, and then he pulls a promise from the Old Testament, he says this, he will be one that comes to prepare the way of Israel to meet their God. That's act one. He's going to prepare the way for Israel to meet their God. How will Israel meet their God? How will God arrive? Well, then Luke takes us from Jerusalem right into the northern regions, an insignificant part of that nation. And he takes us up there to a village called Nazareth in Galilee, and he takes us to a woman called Maria, or Mary in English. And here's where we pick up the text. If you have your Bible open, chapter 1, verse 26, here's where we pick it up. It starts with two emphatic words. It says, God sent. See, Everything starts with God, friends. Christmas is God's idea. See, what had happened was sin, death, and evil had assumed rulership in this world because when humans chose their way over God's way, they got the throne. Oh, but, but God had been working. God had been working to reverse that curse. And instead, Christmas is really the unfolding of God's great redemption plan. It's a coup over sin and death and evil. He's about to put them under his foot. God sent, it says, the angel. Now, we just sung about a lot of angels. The Christmas story is filled with angels. Have you noticed that? If you read the Bible, angels are fascinating beings. Uh, we have a, a version of a delicate type of angel. They almost look fragile. But in Scripture, they're nothing like that. In Scripture, they're warriors, worshipers. They are messengers of God, and they are accomplishing God's will, and they also are protectors of God's people. Fascinating creatures angels are. And God sends the angel Gabriel. Gabriel in Hebrew means God is great. 
God is great. Now, he shows up three times in the Bible, Gabriel does. He shows up in Zechariah. He shows up to Zechariah and says, you're going to have a son. Impossible. <laughs> then he shows up to Mary because he's got a message from God that you're going to have a son, Mary. The, the previous time he shows up is way back in the Old Testament to Daniel. It's fascinating account. When Gabriel shows up to Daniel with a message from God, his presence and the look of him was so terrifying that Daniel fell to the ground in fear. I mean, this is, not, this is a fierce creature of God. And he comes with a message, and Daniel's so intimidated, he falls on the ground trembling, and the angel has to say, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. So God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth in the city of Galilee. Now, what's interesting about this region is this is not the place you would tend to send the Son of God if he's making his arrival on earth. Jerusalem made sense. I mean, that's where the cultured people are. Everybody send, turn to someone next to you and say, I'm cultured. You know, we're in the city of Toronto. We're in the big city. It's a cultured. It's a cultured people. It's the educated people, the religious people, the people of significance, the people with power. They're in Jerusalem. Now, in the Roman Empire, Jerusalem wasn't that significant. But in that area... It was the place. In fact, the, he comes from Nazareth. Nazareth is where Jesus spent, he was born in Bethlehem, but his infancy to age 30, he spent, and he lived the type of life many of us try to avoid. He lived an ordinary life. Now, the world tells us you need to be living an extraordinary life, or, you know, who are you? Jesus lived an ordinary life for much of his life in preparation for the extraordinary final chapter of his life. But see, Nazareth was a place that was kind of despised and for, you know, a little place of disrepute. Galileans were in general held in disrepute for a number of reasons. One, they're not cultured, they're not sophisticated. But more than that, they tended to mingle with the Gentiles. There was a region right around Galilee called the Decapolis and other areas where lots of Gentiles. And Gentiles were people who were not followers of Judaism. And in Judaic law, you're supposed to be separate from them, but Galileans mingled with them. In fact, it was so despised. In John chapter 1, verse 46, a man named Nathaniel says, can any good thing come from Nazareth? Can anything good thing come from it? Well, Jesus. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a city in Galilee. The angel went to a virgin, promised a marriage to the descendant of David named Joseph. Again, an Old Testament promise being fulfilled that the Messiah would come through David. The virgin's name was Mary. When the angel entered her home, he greeted her and said, you are favored by the Lord. How many would love that? That's awesome. The Lord is with you. She was startled by what the angel said and tried to figure out what this greeting meant. The angel told her, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. I love that. Don't be afraid is in reference not to how he looks, but to what he's about to say. Don't you hate it when someone preferences something? Like, hey, I love you, but let's just stick with the I love you part, right? Or, hey, you know that I'm for you. You know that, that I'm behind you, but there's a but. Well, there's a but here that's going to happen. So she says, you're favored. You're wonderfully favored. Don't be afraid because what I'm going about to tell you is going to... You will become pregnant and give birth to a son and name him... Jesus. 
He will be a great man. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. Your son will be king of Jacob's people forever, and his kingdom will never end. And Mary responds this way in verse 35. The only thing she could say is this. How can this happen? I'm a virgin. How is this going to happen? So here's my first thought. When I think about us calling on God in the middle of a world that seems off course, in the middle of your world that might seem off course, what we learn from this story and what we learn from the biblical narrative is this, that we can call on Jesus with our doubts. In the Bible, all of the doubts are presented in the form of a question. That's how you know there's a doubt there. They're always presented in the form of a question. And doubts in the Bible are very different than ours. Now, you notice Zechariah, and this is the part that I find incongruent in chapter 1 of Luke. Did you, did you already pick up the incongruency? I mean, Zechariah, the angel comes to him and says, you're going to have a son. Impossible. Now, what I didn't read to you is what the angel said in response to his doubt. The angel disciplines him, punishes him. Says, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until your child is born. Because you doubt it, you're not going to be able to talk. Okay, so that's what happens to doubters? Well, what about Mary's question? The angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a son. How can that happen? And what does the angel do? The angel gives her more information and reassures her. The angel says this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. In other words, Mary, just like in Genesis chapter 1, where the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters and brought life out, the Holy Spirit will hover over you and generate life in your womb miraculously. Now, what's going on there? Is the angel, because it's the same angel, it's Gabriel and both instances is he kind of playing good cop bad cop is that what he's doing there why does he punish one person for doubt and he helps the other person with their doubt well the bible is so nuanced when it comes to doubt in our world and culture doubt is usually played out one of two ways in religious circles we're encouraged not to doubt don't question don't doubt but in the secular world or the world outside the world of faith you're encouraged to doubt. It's actually an ideal to live with doubt and to not trust and to test. It's an ideal that you hold on to. In the Bible, neither of those ideals are the ones that are presented. In fact, there are two types of doubt that you'll find throughout the Bible. There's an honest doubt and a dishonest doubt. Mary is expressing an honest doubt. An honest doubt is this. You ask a question because you truly want an answer. You ask a question, how can this be? Like, how is that possible? I want it to be, but how is this even possible? It's an honest doubt. A dishonest doubt is when you ask a question, but you really don't want an answer because you feel like you already know the answer. It, on a, a dishonest doubt is what Zachariah did. He just said, listen, how can it be? I'm, I'm too old. Like, it's not possible. He's come with a conclusion already. He's not looking for an answer. He already figures he knows what it is. And it's called a dishonest doubt. And it's really why it's disciplined is this. It's not really a doubt at all. It's dogma. 
It is definitively, Zechariah knows, it's not possible. It's absolutely impossible. So let me illustrate this. Uh, pastor Keith Smith, he was the lead pastor of this church for years. He's our teaching pastor. When I was a young guy just a couple of years ago, and, and uh, I was, uh, it was a number of years ago, <laughs> before I went off to Montreal, I, I had the privilege of sitting at the board table with Pastor Keith as his associate pastor. And, and I got to be around these incredible lay leaders from our congregation, deacons who helped serve and lead this church. And Pastor Keith has a number of sayings. And these are sayings that influence the leadership culture at this church. One of them, you've heard multiple times, what's best for Christ church? This is a saying that, a question that Pastor Keith would ask all the time. Why? Because it reminds us of two things. It belongs to Christ. It's not our church, not my church. It's Jesus' church. And two, when you ask what's best for it, sometimes when you don't want to make a hard decision, you'll do it because it's the best thing for the church. But the other one, I love this one. He'd say this to all the boards and staff meetings we had whenever we were trying to decide something. He'd say, come with a contribution and not a conclusion. Because he knew. He knew leaders, people that are, who are used to leading, people who have expertise in areas. Sometimes what we can do is we can come to decisions we can come to points of, of decision-making or questions, and we feel like we arrive, and we feel like we already know what needs to be done. And so if we insist on our way, we don't get the best way. When you come with a contribution, you can listen to the others at the table, and you can get the very best. You don't become immovable. You're always movable, right? It's brilliant. It's a form of, though, when you come with just a conclusion, it's a form of dishonest doubt. See, dishonest doubt is a question that already feels like it has the answer. It's not open to a new contribution. It's not open to new information. It already knows. Have you been there? Have you stopped asking God questions because you feel like you already know the answers? Have you already filled in the blank? God's not able. God's not listening. God's not present. Have you already come with your conclusions? to the doubts that maybe cloud your world and when it seems off course? Matt, I've been there. Coming with conclusion, I feel like I already know. I already know where God is or where he's not or what he's doing. I already, I'm suspicious. I've already filled in the blank. Have you done that before? In this context, Mary is beautiful because Mary comes with honest doubt, real doubt, a question that is begging for an answer. She wants an answer. And the key characteristics of anyone who really is presenting and calling on God with real honest doubts is that you come with humility. And this is very tough for us to admit, I don't know. I don't know where this is headed. I don't know what's best. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know how to control this circumstance. But she's not just humble, she's brave. Brace yourself for the answer. Sometimes the answer is not at all what you suspect. When you come with sincere, real, and honest doubts, you can call on Jesus with them, and he will answer. He will answer. Sometimes, friends, we have learned in our culture, in our world, or maybe even in communities like this, to suppress doubts. Listen, think. Think. Look for answers. Look for truth in Jesus. Call on him. And you, friends, I know this. 
He will meet you in there, but be careful because you're going to have to be brave. Some of the answers are not the ones you're looking for. <laughs> Man, how many times have I done that in life? Go on looking for answers only to get the wrong ones, not the ones I wanted. You know, when I asked Shelly to marry me, I was looking for a particular answer. It, it came, it came. It just took a little while, but it came. Friends, if she hadn't doubted, we wouldn't get some of the most beautiful words in the Bible, though. In Luke chapter 1, verse 37, she says, how is this possible? And the angel speaks to her, and then the angel answers the question that in the Old Testament, a neighbor and Sarah, the angelic creatures posed. They said, is anything too hard for God? They asked that question, and the angel answers it to Mary. In Luke chapter 1, verse 37, I love how the King James Version puts it. He says this, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. The question is answered from the Old Testament. The parallel between Zechariah and Elizabeth and Abraham and Sarah, it's all answered in this moment in the person of Mary. She doubts, and we get some of the sweetest words, sweeter than honey, words that have been a source of encouragement for me when I find myself in a difficult spot. Nothing is impossible for God. That wouldn't have come. We wouldn't read that today had she not expressed, expressed honest doubt. Friends, call on Jesus. Call on him with your doubts. When you're feeling like he's not present, when you're feeling like you don't know what's going on in the world, you don't know how to react, you don't know what to do next, call on your Savior. Call on Jesus in those moments. Then we see something very else powerful in the text. We find out that we can call on Jesus in our strength and weakness. Now, if you're like me, I have no problem calling on Jesus when I'm feeling weak. When life is falling apart, how many your prayer life gets a little better? When you have a great need and you can't provide that need, how many know you, you lean in and you pray a little extra hard? Anyone been there? See, I'm the only one in the room that does that then. <laughs> but you know, we need to call on Jesus when we are weak and when we feel strong. Sometimes, now this is the beautiful thing about Luke what he's uncovering here in this passage. See, he's introducing a kingdom of which the people of God don't understand because they see kingdoms operating out of a position of power. And when you want power, and our world operates with power, it's always power over people. I mean, you have to work it. You have to compromise. You have to do this to get control and power over people. And it affects our marriages. And we begin power control in marriages and with our children and in society, in the workplace. You just got to do that. You power up and over people. But the kingdom that Jesus was introducing is the power under people. Wherever Jesus goes, and I'll show you in a few minutes, people are elevated. The marginalized are included. People are restored, and people are given power back. He gives his power away liberally. In his kingdom, the meek inherit the earth. In his kingdom, the weak become strong. In his kingdom, the way up to the top is actually down, and it's serving. Look at the way he comes into this world through this woman, Mary. We know this about her. We know Mary's poor. How do we know that? In the very next chapter, they bring Jesus to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord, and they make a sacrifice because you had to make a sacrifice. And the Savior of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, his offering is two pigeons. 
The temple at that time had a, had a sliding scale based on your financial income, what type of sacrifice you needed to make, and the very poorest one for the poorest of poor would be two pigeons. Cattle, sheep, other things were way up there. Two pigeons was for the poorest family. The one with all authority under heaven and earth was born into a family that did not have economical means. Then we know this about her. We know she was young. Likely between 13 and 14 years old. I mean, she is young. Because that would have been the age when a woman would be betrothed to a man in marriage. Now, there's so many strange things about that, right? And it's, but you need to remember, in that culture, if you were over 40, you were a senior citizen. So you didn't live long. Like, your 40s was your last chapter. How many are in your last chapter right now, you know? So she's young, she's poor, she's a woman in a patriarchal, male-dominated culture of which women had no authority. It was a very oppressive culture. So she's poor, she's young, she's a woman, and then she becomes an unwed mother in a small town that held very traditional views that people would be... People do that sometimes. You ever notice that? They love to talk. And they love to talk about people instead of to people. Have you ever noticed that? Oh, well, man, do it's addictive, right? It's addicting to talk about people and never talk to them about what you're talking about them. About. How's that? And in that traditional culture, Mary would have been experiencing that. Now, friends, think about this. Is there any possible way that the Savior of the universe could be born in a less powerful situation? She's the wrong gender by the standards of that day. She's on the wrong side of the track. She's from the wrong race because she's from a subjugated race. She's not even a part of the ruling class of the Romans in this day. She's, she's the wrong everything. She is the least powerful person and the all-powerful God of the universe comes through her. Whoa. God is showing us something about how his kingdom works. He's trying to help us understand that his kingdom works differently. It's a different power structure. It operates differently. And I see Christians make this mistake all the time. All the time. They're feeling powerless in society. They don't like what's going on. And what do they do? They try to use the levers of this culture to change the culture. Oh, if we can just control the government. If we can just control the school board. If we can just control... And they try to power up over as if they could change culture. Friends, if you know the history of the first century church, they brought the Roman Empire to their knees. But they didn't do it by powering over them. You know how they did it? They served. The history is fascinating. The first century church served the people nobody would serve. They went to the people that everyone else ignored. They didn't just take care of their own. They took care of people that oppressed them. In fact, the historical accounts are radical. As the Roman Empire began to grapple with the fact that there was this movement that cared for their people because their people didn't even want to care for them. It's incredible. Love wins in the end. It's incredible how upside down this kingdom is. See, Pastor Keith alluded to it last week. How do you overcome evil? With evil? With what? A different tool. With good. How do you overcome darkness? With darkness? 
No, with light, a different tool. Why? Because the tools of this world will not change the trajectory of this world. They'll just further fuel the world into greater darkness and brokenness. It's a different kingdom and it operates a different way. But this is what's so hard to understand when it comes to praying and calling on Jesus in your weakness and strength is we have a poor understanding of weakness and strength. Paul would say that they need to work together. And I'll show you this in a moment. He would say they need to work together. He says, when I'm weak, then I am strong. We like the strong part, don't we? I like the strong part. I don't like the weak part. A great author who's done a lot of work on this is a guy named Andy Crouch. And he likens in our culture and day and age, I think it's really well. He says, to be strong in this culture is to have authority in the culture we live in. To be weak is to be vulnerable. Now, here's the thing. None of us want to be here, do we? But Jesus spent a good part of his life living right there. We all want this. But you might be here today and you feel more like this. You feel indefensible against the powers that be, the things that are going on in this world, the things that are going on in your own psyche and mind and emotions. Here's the thing. As we understand it biblically and as we understand it in our culture, to live in this world and be vulnerable and not have any authority, this is to suffer. This is, this is the way of poverty. This is the way injustice has happened in this world. What makes things unjust is people are stuck in a place of weakness and they have no ability to get to a place of strength. They're kept down by systemic uh, poverty systems. They're kept down by uh, a slavery that still exists in this world. There are more slaves today than there ever was in the last century or two. Incredible the amount of slavery that happens globally. Oppressing people, controlling their lives, keeping them in a place of vulnerability. Vulnerability. When we get there, we suffer. And friends, I'm very aware in this room, there are people in this room that feel very vulnerable right now. You feel you cannot control the things around you. You feel that you have no authority, no power, no strength. You feel, and it's very real. God didn't meant for us to just live vulnerable lives. He didn't. But in our world, there are people who live just authoritative lives. They have authority without vulnerability, and this is dangerous. Because if you have authority without vulnerability, you can exploit people for your own means. See, this is how idols work in our day and age. Back in the days of Scripture, idols were often little fashion gods. But the idols of our day is money, sex, and power. These are the idols that are addictive in our day. Idols always promise you authority with no vulnerability. Always do. They always promise you that. Money promises you authority, that you can control your circumstances. You can stay safe. You can build up a nest egg. You can build a buffer between you and poverty. You'll be safe. It promises you authority, but it can't deliver. Because you hit something like a marriage that you can't fix with money a health problem you can't fix with money, the lack of peace that stirs in your heart and you can't fill it with money. It promises that, but it can't deliver. Idols always do that. You are never meant to live with just vulnerability, but people live in vulnerability in this culture without authority. People live with authority without vulnerability. How many remember a man named Steve Jobs? Steve Jobs uh, ran Apple. 
for many years. He, many people would call him a culture setter, even if you don't like Apple products. I don't think there's no denying that he's a culture setter. I'm looking at, uh, no, I, I was going to point him out, but maybe I should. Uh, Pastor Gordon Upton, as I was in a meeting with him a number uh, a year ago or so, and he pulled out his iPhone to take a selfie. And I thought, that's cool. That's cool. Apple, it dominates the culture in many ways and an affected change in many ways. What was interesting in the biography of Steve Jobs, if you've ever read it, it's fascinating as the biographer reflected on his personality and his temperament. He was a very successful guy, highly intelligent, certainly in certain areas, incredibly successful, went against the norms at time and won. He won big time. He became a culture setter. He lived in this realm of authority, but without vulnerability. And it showed up in his last chapter more than any. He developed cancer. And it was an operable cancer. It had a successful rate of treatment. But because he had been so successful in this quadrant, he thought it made him an expert in almost every quadrant. And so, despite his doctor's uh, warnings and, and his family wanting him to have the surgery and the treatment, he went a natural path because he knew more. He couldn't be vulnerable. He couldn't admit that he had to depend on others. And what happens is, as the biographer reflects on it, is he ends up being, leaving a, a wife with no husband, children with no dad, prematurely, maybe a world without another culture setter. There's an arrogance that happens if you live in this quadrant all the time. It happens in this world. You can live and be very successful in, in, I don't know, business or politics and think you know how to run a church. Or you could be very successful at running a church and think you know how to run a business. Like, they're not all, we can learn from each other, but they're not all transferable skills. But authority will make you think they are. They'll make you think that you know more than the experts in those areas. There's something about strength and vulnerability, though. We were never meant to live with one or the other. Now, we live in a generation right now. Get this. This is fascinating. 2017. We live in a generation right now, maybe for the first time in human history, there are people in our culture that live with neither authority or vulnerability. You know where they live? In their parents' basement. <laughs> Video gaming. Seriously. This is like no other culture or any time in history. They have retreated from the world and they're able to have the illusion. It looks like comfort and safety on the outside, but it's not. It may be the most dangerous of all of these things. It may be the most damaging of all of these things. Because why? They live in the basement, so to speak, and they have a sense of authority because in this video game, they're at level 300. And online, they're king. But what does that matter in the real world? And they often live with a, a, an illusion of vulnerability. As you retreat from the world and withdraw, things and idols become more and more tempting. And so pornography is a great temptation to that people who are stuck in this place. Because why? It provides an illusion of vulnerability and intimacy. But in the end, both are destructive. Both aren't real. Both end with us not leaving a lasting contribution in culture and society. We retreat. We don't become what God made us to be. Here's the thing. Jesus promised in John 10.10, 10, if you're a follower of Jesus, he promised you what he called an abundant life. An abundant life. And the abundant life is only lived when we live with both of these. 
both authority and vulnerability. And Jesus displays this in spades. You notice this in Jesus. If you read the Gospels, if you're here and you've never read the Gospels, you should. Because it's amazing. And Jesus is simply amazing. And when you read him, you hear over and over in the Gospels, people will say this, that he taught with great authority. He was saying things nobody had ever heard. And he said it in a way that everybody stood up and listened because it was like drop the mic, walk away moments. Like it was amazing what he would say. He spoke with authority. Not only did he speak with authority, he acted with authority. Authority over death. He raised people from the grave. He had authority over death. He had authority over illnesses. He had authority over people. He turned the money changers' tables over and drove them out of the temple. I mean, if you get that flannel graph version of Jesus in your mind that Mika Mal and the children come, he was all that and more. But, but, but whoa, 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 be careful. He was a man of great authority. And here's what marked his authority. Everywhere Jesus went, he gave it away. He gave authority to the marginalized. He recognized women in a culture that denigrated them. He elevated their status. Everywhere he went, it was power under people. Listen to this. Watch every time he healed someone. It was with compassion, it says. Why? Because they were marginalized because of their illness. The blind man or the lame man was reduced to begging, and they had no authority. They were powerless. They were weak. They were vulnerable. And what did he do? He gave them authority. He gave them their sight back. He gave them their legs back. They were able then to have strength. Everywhere Jesus went, he gave away his authority. In our world and culture, generally speaking, people do not give away authority. People keep authority. Oh, they may delegate some authority, but they make sure it all comes back to them. Jesus gave it away liberally. But here's what his followers struggled with. Is he had this, was this man of great authority, and they knew it. They followed him. The masses began to follow him. But what they couldn't deal with is a vulnerable Jesus. Because Jesus showed he wasn't just about this. He became vulnerable. He became vulnerable so that we could know, have authority. He allowed himself to be crucified. He understood that in this quadrant of being vulnerable is the whole idea of sacrifice, which is key to understanding the Christian faith, where we say, not my will, God, but your will be done, where we sacrifice on behalf of the community and others. You know, we did an offering early in the service. Why do we do this? This is a sacrificial part of worship. It's not my resources. None of this money I have belongs to me. It belongs to God. And so I sacrifice some of that back so that the kingdom of God can expand. What am I doing? I'm, on, I'm trying to be like Jesus. Jesus gave away. He found himself constantly in places of vulnerability. He wept with people who were grieving. He touched people that were diseased. He became vulnerable so they could become whole. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. And so in strength and weakness, in understanding strength and weakness, here's the thing, friends. Wherever you might find yourself, I believe there are many people in this room that are finding themselves more in that vulnerable quadrant. Life is tough, man. Life beats up on you. If you're feeling vulnerable today, call on Jesus because you need to remember, if you are in Christ, you have an authority it's not your authority, it's a delegated authority from God. 
Even the angels knew this. Even the people of God knew this. When in the scripture, when the enemy, Satan, evil, was coming at, and the angel says this, the Lord rebuke you. Meaning, not my authority, but Jesus' authority rebuke you, evil one. The Lord rebuke you. We have a delegated authority from our Savior on high if you are in Christ. And you need to be reminded that if you're in a vulnerable state. But if you're in a place of authority right now, and that can look very different for many of us, maybe you're in a great place, and we rejoice with you if you are. If you're in a place where you, you've been able to be a good steward and accumulate finances and you're in a place where the family's well and you've got some safety and things seem controllable and job front is good and this is good and that is good, wonderful. Call on Jesus. Call on him in, weak, in your weakness, but call on him in your authority, in your power, lest you forget him. Call on him. Know him when things are going well. So you're, as a sheep, you'll know his voice when things aren't. I'm going to invite our communion servers just to dismiss themselves and prepare. Uh, to, we're going to celebrate the Lord's death and resurrection today. But here's the thing, friends. If you have doubts, come to Christ with your honest doubts. If you have, you have these insecurities in life, this weakness or authority, call on Jesus when you're feeling weak. Call on Jesus when you're feeling strong. And here's the last one. And we see it modeled in the life of Mary. She, we can call on Jesus as our Lord. Mary lived a life that was submitted to him. You know, she was an ordinary woman. But every one of you knows her name. How many will remember your name in 100 years? Maybe if God gives me grandkids, maybe they'll remember it. But they're not going to remember my name. But we all know Mary's name. And do you know why we do? We know Mary's name because she submitted to Christ, submitted to God, and said, yes. Yes. Look at the story, though. It's absolutely fascinating. If you're a parent, you've got to listen to the next part. We're almost done here. So the angel says this to Mary, you have found favor with God. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son and name him Jesus. Parents, did you name your children well, of course you did, right? Did your parents name you? How many wish they named you something different? <laughs> of course they did. Because if you have authority over someone, you can name them. And we name our children. I named my children, or my wife named my children. Actually, our second child, I walked in, and my wife was calling him Keenan. And I was laughing because I thought we hadn't just made that decision, but she made the decision for us. But, but here, here, we name our children because we have authority over them. And God takes away that privilege from Mary and Joseph. And it's very telling. Nothing is wasted in Scripture, these words. You can't name him because you don't have authority over him. You're not his manager. He is your manager. You're not going to tell Jesus what to do. He is going to lead you into truth and righteousness. There is something that's happening here in the narrative. Mary says yes to God. When God says, you're going to have a son, she says yes, knowing this will cost her. The rest of her life, she was known as that woman who had a baby out of wedlock. Because in that culture, it was so terrible. It would, everybody would have been talking, right? And she couldn't sit down with her friends and say, well, you know, I know it looks bad, but there was this angel. You know, that nobody's going to buy that. She knew the cost. It was a heavy cost.
to allow the Son of God to come in her and through her. A heavy cost. It's tough, friends, when I have people, and I have regularly, people come to me who are thinking of being a Christian, want to be a Christian. You might even be here. And they're doing a cost-benefit analysis. Because if I become a Christian, do I have to, and this is the question I get, do I have to stop or, or do, I, do I have to do this? And they're doing a cost-benefit analysis. You know, I've learned a long time ago, step back from that. They're not ready to call Jesus Lord. You can't do cost-benefit analysis because when Jesus comes into your soul, into your womb, he comes already named. He's not, he's not your additive. He's not your helper when things are rough. He comes as Savior and Lord, Jesus Redeemer of the world, King of kings, and Lord of lords. And when the king speaks, we say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. That's what's so amazing about the person of Mary. She's willing to submit her will and say, not my will, but your will be done. Let's call on Jesus. Father, we thank you for the person of Jesus. And God, in this context right now, and friends, wherever you may find yourselves, I invite you, you might even want to hold your hands out like you're holding your need in front of you almost. Maybe it's a doubt. And if you're in a place of doubt right now of God's presence, his care, his attention, I would like you to identify that doubt. Maybe you doubt he exists. Maybe you doubt whatever it might be. Maybe you doubt aspects of the Christmas story. Maybe you doubt Mary was a virgin. How's that possible? Take your doubt to God, but don't come with a conclusion. Don't come with a conclusion. Hold your doubt up and say, God, I have a sincere question of faith. I really do want an answer. And I'm willing to accept that answer. Just hold it up to before God. And if you're here and you're finding yourself in a place of vulnerability... Maybe it's because with time, just the march of time has worn your body down, your heart, your mind. Maybe it's because there's relational things that are going on and despite your best efforts, you can't fix it. Maybe, maybe it's your body, mind, it might be your soul or spirit. Take your vulnerability to him now. God, we confess our need for you. God, Would you strengthen me in my weakness? God, would you shine your power through my vulnerability right now, God? And if you're in a place of authority or things are just going really well right now, you're in a place of strength, friends, again, we rejoice with you. That's wonderful. But call on Jesus. God, I thank you for what's in my life when it rains or when it's sun shining. And God, I thank you for your provision. But I want to be reliant on you even when things are going good. Everything I have is yours, Lord. It all belongs to you, God. So I just, I just hold it up before you and I say, God, I put my faith not in these things, but I put my faith in you and you alone. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.